Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. We have another special guest this week in Martin North, who is founder of boutique research firm Digital Finance Analytics. Digital Finance Analytics combines primarily consumer research, industry modelling, economic analysis and segmentation analytics to provide insight into the dynamics of the Australian property market and also produces the popular Walk the World series available on YouTube. Damo. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, look, most uh, regular readers or and or listeners know that we have this this view about the uh, the one key thing that matters for the Australian economy, and that's whether the uh, Australian house prices on their own, if they're rising or or at least going sideways, whether that can hold up the rest of the economy. Now, we're quite sceptical because we we feel as if the uh, development side of that, and in particular the the employment side, is still very weak, and so that's one key area we're spending a lot of time focused on is is really honing in on this housing markets, uh, getting to the bottom of what going on and Martin's got some um, some great in-depth data and he's one of the uh, one of the leading lights I guess for uh, alternative research in in this area and Absolutely. so we thought it's well worth having him on to uh, discuss what his views are and and really trying to get back to that one key thing that matters about the Australian housing market fantastic and just to let you know that we have uh, pre-shot today's interview but we are available uh, now live to answer any questions at the end of the recording uh, and also of course as always after the interview we will be looking into some of the wider investment implications that these themes can impact on how we invest money here every day at Nucleus Wealth. Uh, and for those that are just tuning into the show, uh, we are, of course, available uh, Thursday 12.30s on the, the Nucleus Wealth webinar uh, page, of course, as always, and also through our YouTube channel and wherever you get your good quality Australian finance podcasts as well. So uh, give us a subscribe if, uh, if, what you, or if you like what you hear today. So on that note, we'll roll the tape and I hope you enjoy. Today on the show, we have founder of boutique research firm Digital Finance Analytics and host of the popular video blog, Walk the World, Martin North. Welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Hello. Good to talk with you. So I might have thought we'd, uh, I just thought we'd start uh, just by, if you wouldn't mind, offering a little bit of background on yourself and, of course, your reasons for starting Digital Finance Analytics, Martin. Yeah, sure. Well, I've got this uh, beer in my bonnet about the fact that the financial industry doesn't understand its customers very well. And so many years ago, I started doing consumer research and getting information about uh, households and their uh, financial footprint and their behaviors and their needs. I also did the same for the SME sector. And, uh, you know, previously, uh, when I was working for large organizations, I tended to use that information as part of my broader role. But uh, about seven or eight years ago, I essentially decided to set out sale on my own and uh, created Digital Finance Analytics, which is, as you say, a boutique research and uh, analytics firm. So we run household surveys, we run small and medium enterprise surveys, and we also do broader analytics. And all of that goes into what we call our core market model. So it's essentially looking at the uh, household sector and the SME sector from a financial perspective. And uh, we're looking at it from that consumer end rather than from a product push end. And that's a bit unusual. And then the information that we uh, capture through our surveys and through our broader research and through our core market model goes out through to various consumer and SME reports, uh, goes through to our blog, as well as the YouTube channel and uh, other information that we go out. We do quite a lot in the media as well. So that's essentially what we do. But it's all based on the idea of listening to customers, seeing what they want, and then responding appropriately. 
Fantastic. Oh, thank you very much for that. Yep. And, and, and I think you're obviously uh, quite well known for a lot of your property views, and that's where we we're sort of wanted to sort of, um, I guess, zoom in for uh, for most of this discussion. Uh, and and I guess we've sort of, I think we're 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 largely on the same page about where we're where we're going to. I think in terms of property, we, we're very much of the same view in, of, as you in terms of um, you know, Australia being over leveraged and um, having issues in terms of. Uh, Government's trying to force feed debt to to a, a um, an economy that's already got sort of the second high, highest uh, globally levels of of, of debt. Um, but I guess we wanted to try and um, sort of take a step back and say, well, uh, so so twenty four. Just wanted to set the scene a little bit and sort of go, well, well, twenty four months ago, we were obviously in the um, uh, in we were in sort of ending up a a, a housing boom. Um, sort of twelve months ago, we were sort of sitting in in, in a bit of a housing bust, and then um, sort of election happens and 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 where it takes. And I sort of just wanted to get your sort of, um, I guess, your views on on or your sort of uh, opinion on on setting that scene about where we got to, uh, where we are in terms of the housing market. Yeah, it's certainly a very interesting journey. I think you need to go back a bit further to really understand what's gone on. And uh, I I start from the deregulation of the financial services sector in the in the 90s and uh, you know 2000 and beyond i then move on to talk about the fact that the uh, mining boom started to dissipate and the strategy that the reserve bank uh, essentially executed was to uh, fatten up the household sector essentially uh, drop interest rates get them to borrow more and use the housing sector and households in particular to try and support the economy and that was been going on literally for the last 10 or 15 years, particularly post the uh, the GFC. But yeah, you're, you're right. The last few years have been very really interesting. So if you go back two years, we were right at the height. There we had, um, you know, the everything boom in terms of uh, house prices were high, debt was very high. Then we had the Royal Commission and all of the bad lending that came out and all of the broader issues. Uh, we saw house prices begin to dial back as the lending multiples from most of the lenders uh, got dialed back. And that's everything uh, from the uh, ratios that they use through to their willingness to lend. And that was sort of pretty unique, wasn't it, in terms of um, housing markets globally? Usually when you have a housing boom, it, it's finished because the, the Reserve Bank of the of the well, the central bank usually finishes it off by raising interest rates and, and you get an economy slowing. I guess it's relatively unique in terms of Australia um, sort of cut off Sort of uh, maybe not quite at the peak of the bo- where the boom would have got to by itself by uh, by a royal commission actually honing in on on that uh, overzealous lending by banks. Well, you're right. So this was a credit led housing boom, and there's a problem with that because the RBA doesn't believe that credit's important, and in True. their core models, they don't think that credit should figure right because basically their mm. argument is credit on one side of the equation is balanced with some sort of asset on the other side of the equation so they can cancel out. My own view is rather different. Credit is the reason why home prices are so high. Free credit, way too free credit, too free lending, got us into those very stratospheric levels in terms of income multiples. You know, households were getting 12, 13 times income by way of mortgages to buy a property. That was nuts. And, um, you know, the Royal Commission really did cast spotlight on that and the banks did dial back and so we saw lending uh, drop considerably so one of the things i look at is what i call mortgage power in other words what multiples what proportion of a mortgage can you get for a given set of income and if you compare it back two three years ago with with, you know a year ago it dropped by about 40 percent. so people just could not get as big a mortgage as previously so that was if you like the 
the, the bottom. As a result of that, we saw prices slide significantly. And, uh, you know, over the last few months, um, dropped Perth, well, you know, over four or five years is down more than um, 20%. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in New South Wales and Victoria, prices were down quite considerably. But then we had the election. And, the- and, and actually, sorry, just, just to come back to that as well, because I've sort of got a bit of a, a pet theory of my own sort of in terms of that, that, look, Perth, uh, as you said, has fallen a lot more than the other cities, but it, but that's that was through most of the same conditions. So, um, you know, I guess from 2012 to 2017, Perth properties were, were falling. Meanwhile, we had a, sort of properties booming everywhere else. And so, I guess I sort of I, I'm positing the theory that yes, credit is certainly credit credit uh, driven, but if you had enough of the if you have enough unemployment as you did in in um, in, in Perth, that's enough to sort of overcome the, uh, the, the, the credit side. Yeah, you're right. So Perth was definitely driven by higher levels of unemployment, uh, compressed wages, and, uh, you know, the fact that the economy really was just uh, very much connected to the mining boom as that uh, dissipated. So essentially nothing replaced it. And then, of course, we had the tighter credit coming over the top as well. So that then drove prices further. And it's worth saying in some areas of Western Australia, prices are down more than 30%. And mm. Many households are in negative equity. In other words, the mortgage is worth more than the value of the property now. And a lot of that is on the um, sort of the coastal strip north and south of Perth, which was a massive building boom. Uh, People bought at the peak and then uh, dropped away, and so they're really stranded. And the question, of course, is, well, are we going to see similar things down the East Coast or will the post-election uh, boom, you know, the first tone of grants and uh, the looser lending that APRA rolled out uh, as well as low interest rates, will that be sufficient to essentially stop the East Coast following the West Coast down? And that's going to be the really interesting question. Mm, absolutely. And I'm sort of, I'm positing, you know, my, my uh, posted a few times that the one economic question that matters is, you know, comes down to me that, uh, you know, can rising house prices or, um, you know, actually, actually drive the rest of the economy if you actually don't get a development boom at the same time? Because it seems well, to me that the development side of it, um, you know, is, is still headed down and, and we're not sort of seeing too much support on, on that. No, you're um, right. You're right about that. So the development story is a really, really interesting and important one because we know that uh, there were 250 to 300,000 units under construction, mostly high rise and mostly targeted at property investors. Unfortunately, property investors have walked from the scene. Some of those were overseas. Some of those were local. Uh, plus, of course, we've had all of the issues around the high rise construction defects and that's from flammable cladding through to poor certification. And certainly my data suggests that high-rise is really under the pump. The number of approvals is way down, particularly for high-rise. And so the forward supply of new property from construction has really come off the boil dramatically. And that is another negative in terms of actually the overall economics. So, you know, if you stand back and think about it, the the economy in Australia is driven by digging resources out the ground and flogging it off. It's driven by financial services, mortgage lending, and it's driven by construction. And we're in the situation where essentially construction is looking pretty weak. The lending is still way down from where it was. We're at 3.1% annualized, according to the RBA latest figures. That level of growth is, is lower than it's been forever. So we are seeing, I think, considerable concerns about the momentum. And that's why when you look at broader economic indicators like employment rate, 
wages growth, um, you know, confidence levels, it's all pretty negative. And that's why whilst there might be a little bit of positive news around home prices more recently, and we can discuss that in a second, the broader economic context doesn't look too flash. And then just add into the mix the international context in terms of China, the US, the iron ore price coming down from 120 US to maybe 80. Those are big moves and significant factors which overall suggest that the economy is not doing as well as many would prefer it to do and many would actually claim to be doing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So let, so let me give you the, um, I guess, what, what, what I hear a lot in terms of the, uh, the bull case for, for property is that you, you've got now um, central banks uh, globally starting to, to loosen up on in terms of in terms of monetary policy so that so that, so they and, and I'm not saying this is this is my belief um, but but you know, I guess I'd like to hear your your argument against it so you've got central banks um, loosening up so that, so that'll keep the the world economy sort of stabilized and, and, and not going too far and possibly even uh, recovering a little uh, you've got the Australian government obviously cutting rates and and cutting rates means more people get out lending we've got Morrison um, with a 95 uh, percent for for new home buyers um, they're obviously very keen to, to to have as many policies as possible to, to help support that housing market. And I guess the argument is if, if the housing market, if they can sort of keep the housing market from falling over, um, there's actually a little bit of a, because the construction has turned down and we, we keep pouring people into the country, we're going to actually have a bit of a shortage of houses um, as as the, the pipeline that sort of stopped being built, um, say, a year ago, finally, finally gets through with these apartments. Um, and so the next sort of construction cycle might not start for another 18 months, two years, once we've actually seen house prices start to go up. And then as long as they can keep everything going until then, um, you know, we're, we're back off to, into, our, into our usual case. So um, over to you. What's your, uh, what's your take when, when people tell you that, that story? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are some factors which you can certainly play like that, but you can play them slightly differently. So the first question is, do we have an undersupply of property? The answer is no. There, According to the last census, there are 1 million vacant properties across Australia. And the ABS statistics show that the number of people per occupied unit has not changed in over 20 years. Now, if there had really been a shortage of properties, you would have expected that to rise. And also, we've got ever more rental property available so that rentals are actually falling uh, compared with where they were two or three years ago. Now, uh, there is going to be continued population growth, I suspect, and that's going to have some impact on demand for property. But the other point to make is that when somebody comes across to Australia, very often they're not going to be in a position to buy property anytime soon. So the uh, so-called shortage of property and the so-called population boom, uh, you know, migration boom being the catalyst, I think is overdone. Uh, there will be some areas where I think that'll still be true, but I don't think it's universally true. The other side of it is you've got to look at credit. And we have the debt to income ratios higher than almost anybody in the world. In fact, NAB put out a thing the other day to say it's above 200% now, uh, which is um, remarkably high if that's true. Uh, the well, we're, still, has, we're still only second, aren't we? We're not first yet. Uh, no, no we're still. No. Uh, Switzerland, <laughs> I think, is probably still first, yeah. but there are some, there are some funnies about Switzerland, and that's the GDP number as well. So, um, but you know, we're we, right. We, up there. We, we can make it. We can make it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th I, th yeah. I think we will. <laughs> what's interesting is if you look at the growth in credit, right? Three point one percent. That's still mm -hmm. a lot higher than average income growth. So, mm. uh, if you look at household debt, uh, it's still going up relative to income and relative to other things. So, we are mm. still getting more and more mired in debt. 
So that's the second factor to bear in mind. The third one is interest rates. Yeah, they're low and will be somewhat lower ahead, but it's beginning to get to the point where those low interest rates aren't necessarily translating through to savings for many borrowers. Now, some will be able to uh, refinance to lower rates, but many, because of low loan-to-value ratios or negative equity, are stuck on mortgages that are much higher rate than the so-called cheap rates that are available to some. So again, you have to be careful. And I always believe in going granular when you start looking at this, because there will be pockets where there is going to be significant spikes in prices. There will be other areas where prices will continue to go down. And there'll be a bunch in the middle, which probably won't go up. I think we're not going to see anything like the accelerator that we saw from, let's say, uh, 2000 onwards. There were there were unique circumstances there that created that. I don't think we're going to see it again. And in fact, if you have a longer term view of home price growth, take 150, 200 years, there's only been two real points, or maybe three, where there was significant um, growth well above the um, you know the, the annualized uh, rate, and that was uh, the deregulation 1990s, 2000s, and you know the, the mining boom. It was post-war because of all of the uh, uh, results of that, and then way earlier. Otherwise, probably has not accelerated anything like we've seen. So could it be that we've actually been lured into a full sense of security about the future trajectory of, of property prices? And this whole idea of property prices double every seven years, which by the way, many people in my survey still intrinsically believe, is not actually uh, proved by the data. So my own view is we need to be much more careful. What if property prices don't recover and don't grow and continue to grow. How does that impact those with large mortgages already, those moving into retirement still with mortgages uh, and hoping to get equity uh, to repay the debt at the end of the uh, journey, as it were? Uh, and how is it going to impact those wanting to get into the market? So I think we have to run some counter narratives here to say, yeah, it might play out like you suggested, but I can give you reasons why it won't. Absolutely. And look, and obviously within that as well, you know, I'll add my bits while we're, while we're talking about it is that, you know, international, that international stabilization is, is by, mon by no means guaranteed. And, and the other big thing for me is, you know, there's this inherent part about um, uh, all the factors that drove us to get us where we are, interest rates falling from whatever 20% down to, to getting, we're closing in on zero now. Um, and, and the debt burden going from sort of whatever it was, 30, 40% of GDP to, as you said, over 200% of GDP, um, you know, you can play those tricks once. And once you hit that point, you're saying, well, yeah, you've, you reach the end of the, it, it, that, that theme, as you said, only has so, so far it can go before you, you reach its natural limits. Yeah, just to be clear, I think you'll find that it's 120 GDP. I think it's 191 or 200 of debt to income, just to be debt clear. To income, sorry. Two measures. Yeah, yeah. No, just yeah. <laughs> wouldn't want yeah. to be accused of uh, misrepresenting the figures. They're still remarkably chronically banned and we're still second after um, Switzerland's on, on GDP. Um, yeah, and what's interesting is that the um, formal narrative as per the government, as per the RBA, and indeed most of the major economists is that everything's fine, you know, a little bit of a perpetuation, but now properties are property prices are booming. It's a great uh, time to get in, you know, property prices will rise significantly and people shouldn't uh, hang back because they might miss the boat. Um, that is one narrative. My own narrative is I think that's uh, over-optimistic. Uh, there are a bunch of negative 
issues, the broad economic issues that we touched earlier, plus the fact that banks are still not lending as loose as they were previously, and plus the fact that we may not see home prices grow anything like as much. And it then begs, begs the question, so you know, if it's not property, then what are the asset classes that might grow? And that's when you come to quantitative easing and stoking the economy. And that's why we might see, for example, stocks outperform property considerably ahead. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think we need to be very careful just not to uh, import the last 20 years for the next 20 years and assume it'll be the same again. It won't be, I don't think. Yeah, and absolutely, absolutely, very different scenarios. And and our take is we'll 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 suggest that Aussie stocks actually don't look that don't look that uh, attractive at the moment anyway, given the uh, <laughs> given how how loaded up. So we're sort of we're tipping most of our money into bonds and and international stocks as a yeah. um, you know it's it's about a when when so much of the economy is all based on as you said either digging stuff out and selling it to China or um, taking the proceeds from that and, and using it to flip houses between yourselves and renovate them. Um, if the housing part stops or slows down and the finance part sort of then follows and and if if, if any problem in China and, and, and slowdowns there, then, then all of a sudden you've got all three sort of legs of your economy are, are struggling. And mm. interestingly, a lot of the super funds, of course, are investing overseas too. So they're not finding that they can get the returns. And of course, if you look at the returns from banks in the last um, six months to a year, those returns are down. The forward expectations is that they will be performing less well ahead. Um, Westpac even perhaps more so given what's happened in the last couple of days. Um, mm. So I think that's true. You probably want to look beyond those. And, uh, you know, the broader economic barometer here looks stormy at very best. And uh, to my mind, could look even worse than that. Yeah, and and you know, I could go on for 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 another twenty minutes about the banks, but I will just sort of put in that um, in terms of banks, Australian banks. Um, so so we run a lot of global investments at, at Nucleus for our super clients and our, our investors. And uh, what we find very much is Australian banks have still got some of the highest returns in the world, um, but are also some of the most expensive banks in the world. And so, um, and what the, a lot of the reason for that is everywhere else. Um, the, the yield curves have fallen a lot far. They're sort of two steps in front of us, particularly in Europe, where um, your banks are very much struggling for profitability because uh, when when the RBA start, when the central banks start to hit their zero lower bound, the banks really suffer because they need a they need a what's called a steep yield curve. And so, um, uh, you know, if 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 you're not expecting, or if you are expecting, like we are, that 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 we're in for low rates for a long time, that means poor profitability for banks, and and certainly very different to what we've seen over the last sort of twenty odd years. Yeah, there's some very interesting work done in Europe where, of course, they've had low rates for longer. And they basically make the point that as interest rates fall, then banks do three things. Firstly, they tend to lend less rather than more, simply because they can't afford to uh, take the margin hit. Secondly, they can't take deposits lower than a certain level because then everybody just takes all the deposits away, which means that they can't actually fund their book. And thirdly, they tend to speculate more on things like derivatives and other uh, sort of more flowery options rather than core lending. So effectively, it doesn't help the real economy, right? Mm. And, and so what you end up with is a banking system that actually is uh, not helping the growth. And you know, if you look at Germany, for example, there's a lot of debate there about how on earth do they restart the uh, German economy when it's or the German economy overall has uh, a surplus at the moment, but the banks are really struggling. They're not wanting to lend. And so lower interest rates is not a pathway necessarily to more profitability. And I guess the other point here in Australia, you could argue that over the last two or three, four or five years, banks have supported their superior profits thanks to illegal behavior or at very uh, least poor 
management practice. And that's been thrown out uh, now into the light, thanks to the Royal Commission and to Austrac and other things. And so the question is, how, mu- how profitability are our banks really if, in fact, they stick to the rules rather than actually break the rules? Yeah. And well, uh, I guess that sort of leads on to that whole Royal Commission part though, isn't it? So so Austrac's come out again and I, I, I don't think anyone sort of doubted um, Austrac's, uh, I guess, their dedication to doing their job when, when they came out and fined the CBA $700 million. So and, and obviously this Westpac charges are, are look like they'll be at least that and, and, and possibly more. Um, ASIC has started to to uh, prosecute a few cases, but it, it does look as if APRA is uh, a little bit more light touch still. I don't know what your thoughts are on on, on, the, on our three main regulators of banks. Yeah, so I've had the view for some time that APRA is the one that, uh, by the way, APRA got off very lightly in the Royal Commission, but APRA is the one that really is so captured by the banks. And they tend to want to, as you say, light touch. They want to work with the banks rather than actually be a little bit more aggressive and, and hold the banks accountable. Now, there is the Bayer regime now, which is effectively a bunch of behavioral norms that the uh, uh, APRA is expecting. But the question is how they're policing that. And I do think that the APRA loosening of lending quite recently was a little bit nonsensical given all we know about the bank's books and the risks that they actually are currently sitting on. So I agree with you. ASIC, I think, is doing a good job. I think the um, ACCC is doing some good stuff there and the Productivity Commission highlighted a whole bunch of issues. But APRA, no, I don't even give them a pass mark at the moment. Mm. And so I guess that sort of leads to the that sort of uh, – comes back to if you've got a government that seems to be pretty hell bent on bent on doing what it can to keep house prices high, um, it's got a you know compared to other um, other governments around the world, we've got lots of uh, fiscal capacity. Uh, are you expecting more in terms of the uh, once we get our our ninety five percent for new home buyers, they can borrow up to that at the uh, backed by the rest of uh, the, re- the the other Australians. Um, you expecting more sort of policy push from the government? I guess that's and and, and what areas? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see significant demand for that uh, first owner grant. I personally don't think it's a good idea because what you do is you lift all the boats in the harbour, so it doesn't really help. It just makes prices more expensive. But I suspect they'll probably open the aperture more and uh, offer it to more people because it's uh, a simple uh, thing that they can do and it looks as if they're doing something. Uh, It's not my view, it's not the right thing to be doing and it's not a very real thing. And if you look in the UK where they did this four or five years ago, there, because house prices have not recovered, many people who bought in uh, with these uh, 95% equivalent uh, ended up with um, mortgages that are worth more than the property. So they've got real issues there. So it's certainly not a very good thing. So yeah, I don't think the government will do much in the short term because they are very precious about their surplus. Um, they of course announced infrastructure investment and infrastructure investment allows them to do stuff without actually it showing on the uh, current account because of course it's handled differently and so effectively they can still balance the numbers and 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 the guarantee doesn't show up until the loans go bad anyway <laughs> exactly so, yeah. convenient yeah. isn't it so they can yeah. basically do stuff without actually appearing to be doing stuff but mm. you know my view is we have plenty of fiscal space here in australia and we should be doing a lot more now the economy is definitely uh, not as strong as people would want it to be. And I know that they keep saying, well, we've got massive growth in jobs. But if you look at the quality of those jobs, a lot of them are low-paid healthcare sector, 
jobs. Mm. Um, a lot of them are actually what I call the bedpan economy. It's really important in terms of actually helping old people and uh, helping you know those with illnesses and things. But the question is, where does the productivity come from in doing that? And what we're doing is just we're moving money around the economy, but we're not necessarily creating more stuff. So I keep coming back to where is the next engine of growth coming from for the Australian economy. It's not going to be finance necessarily. It's not going to be housing necessarily. It's not going to be construction or mining. So what is it? And then you yeah. overlay and then you overlay the drought on top of that. And I think that the drought is much more significant than people are actually really recognizing yet. Yeah, this is this is a big deal. Um, and what happens if the drought goes on for two, three, four, five years? Um, the economy is really going to be very much um, weakened by that. So I think it's time for a much more robust strategy from the government in terms of uh, you know pulling more levers. And yet they're leaving all the heavy lifting to the Reserve Bank and to yeah. Phil Lowe. Um, Phil Lowe will take rates lower. And I think he's today talking about, well, this evening, talking about unconventional policies. We'll see some of that as well. Uh, but of course, if you look at the US, if you look at Japan, if you look at Germany, these unconventional policies have not worked. They have not created the momentum that people wanted. And I worry that we could be wandering into a Japanization of our economy here. And essentially, that means very low rates for very long levels of time, no income growth, um, continuing rising costs, a bit of stagflation thrown in, and no real innovation in terms of future growth. And so I think that the story should be about innovation. It should be about new things, new developments. Uh, you know, I think the SME sector is really where a lot of the investment should be made. But that's if you talk to SMEs, as I do in my surveys, they can hardly ever get funding these days because it's too tough to be able to get the funding they need. So we have a fundamental innovation value creation issue and so what we're doing is we're going around the old house, uh, housing trap again, trying to lift home prices, trying to make people feel more wealthy so they spend a bit more. Um, will it be successful? I have my doubts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the, the great Australian entrepreneur is the guy who, um, you know, buys a house and renovates it and flicks it to somebody else, you know. Well, it's artificial, it right? So, so, Absolutely. so if you think about it, what happens is home prices go up, banks can lend more, Therefore, the balance, bank's balance sheets inflate. That means that home prices can go up, which means that the banks can lend more. Um, mm. It's a Ponzi scheme insofar that it goes round in an ever-decreasing circle, but it's not creating real value, right? And whilst no. households may feel more wealthy because they've got an extra zero on the end of their, of their property, you know, when they come to sell it, um, you know, unless they can find somebody a greater fool to buy it, <laughs> it's, it's actually meaningless. And my concern is that we've got people with big debt pools moving into later old age now, still with massive debts, um, and they're going to have issues in terms of being able to, you know, shake it all out. So to me, the big debt issue is a real significant one, and yet we don't have the innovation cycles that we need to be able to make our economy work. And by the way, my own view is that Howard and Costello are res responsible for a lot of this. When we had the mining boom, when they were in power, they should have used some of the funds that was being created from that, not just to hand it back in terms of tax cuts, but they should have created the sorts of things that like Norway did with its, um, its national fund to be able to support the uh, economy into the future. Unfortunately, Absolutely. we missed the boat. And, and, and that's any you know, other problem. Like we, we look at those parts and say, well, you, know, you, you drove so much manufacturing out of business by uh, by letting by you know, pumping demand and, and the Aussie dollar up to a dollar ten or whatever versus the US dollar, which meant all your manufacturers all shut down. And so that means, for for my part, is that I think the next 
you know you do need as you said services and, and manufacturing to actually to actually pick up the load but that to me they're not going to pick up the load until you have a much lower australian dollar because a lot of those have shut down and the only way to get them to start back up again isn't um you know if, if, if you're an international and you're looking at oh, should i restart my australian uh my australian operation oh okay it's marginal it's about the same cost as what it would be to put someone in singapore or hong kong or or japan you, you don't say yeah let me go and start up a whole new operation you have to wait until you say wow it's you know 20 percent cheaper to do it in australia let me go and yeah let me go set up one up now so we're sort of well, that's our investment takes trying to play for that aussie dollar down that's why you get your money offshore and and wait for the uh, wait for all those themes you, you spoke about to play out before uh, bringing it back to to buy some cheaper Australian assets. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is really tricky because you end up if you're not careful with essentially uh, saying you know we can never compete with um, uh, overseas players because they can pay a lot less than we can pay, and therefore we're not going to invest in uh, any of those uh, uh, value creating activities here locally. We're just going to uh, rely on the global uh, trading network and you know the global community, and hopefully we can flog our services and they can um, do the do the hard lifting. Of course, if the environment changes and we can see some indications of that if you look at to the US and China for example in the trade wars um, if that international order is translating and transferring we could be at a very significant disadvantage because a lot of the things we used to do onshore we don't do anymore hmm. and so the base of our economy has got narrower and narrower and narrower and a lot of it to be frank is yesterday's news so I worry about you know where the next growth engine is going to come from. And I think it's going to take quite some time to play out. And I don't think the political cycle helps, by the way, as well, because, you know, every two or three years, uh, there's talk about the next election and everybody takes short term uh, uh, measures and, you know, tries to um, bribe people with short term um, uh, promises. But nobody's thinking about the strategic architecture of the country five years, 10 years, 20 years down the track. That's what we should be thinking about. Yeah, and 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 I think the unfortunately, I think the Labor Party is going to take out of the last election that um, hey, we shouldn't prom- we shouldn't try and make any any big structural changes to tax to to make uh, to make you know these things less make all the tax breaks less enticing. They'll, they'll sort of come back and say, well, let's just play a small target game, and you've got a government playing a, a small target game, and so it's sort of almost a bit of a competition who can be the who can do the least. <laughs> yeah, well, in a way, I think both sides of politics are on the same side. Frankly, mm. neither neither of them really want to address the critical issues. You know, here's here's my thought. Right, the, yeah. the whole question of climate change and the adaption that we need to make should be actually uh, allow us to create massive innovation and massive new uh, offerings if we were actually to put money and time and effort into that. And yet, we can't really talk about climate change because, of course, it isn't really happening according to most people here in Australia, or it's uh, you know only a marginal issue. My view is this is probably the biggest challenge around, and yet we are not up to the up to the task here in Australia. It's very sad. Mm, absolutely. So, getting back to the housing market for a minute, yeah, and you, you alluded to some some areas, um, yeah, some some areas that you do think have some promise in terms of the the rebound, and then sort of the uh, the areas that you're most concerned about. Hmm. Um, yes. So, so there are some quite interesting things going on. So houses closer into the major centres in Sydney and in Melbourne are definitely uh, very much in vogue at the moment. And, uh, you know, uh, you can look uh, close in, you know, five to eight k's from the centre. If it's uh, a house on a reasonable plot, then those prices are going up. And in some cases, if uh, Petersham, for example, uh, up 10, 15 percent uh, over the last year. Um not true for units, not true for the outer suburban areas. So uh, another example would be, uh, you know, if you look down some of the uh, areas around um, the coastal strip in Sydney, north and south, 
gone up quite a lot. But if you look, for example, Ride, their prices are still down 14 to 15% from where they were. And it doesn't look to me as though they're going to be recovering. And if you look over in the Western Sydney area, Campbelltown, Liverpool, the prices are still falling there. Property and also land prices are falling there. So I think it's a tale of two cities, right? So more upmarket properties, uh, Valcluse, for example, very significant rises. But at the middle of the road and below, and particularly units still falling, I know you can really much, pretty much say the same thing in Melbourne and to an extent in Brisbane too. So that's how I'm reading it at the moment. So um, the averages that are quoted, you know, CoreLogic 6.3% over the last quarter or realestate.com.au's 0.8% over the last quarter as an average. Who's right? Well, interesting question that they're so divergent. Um but that really doesn't tell you much because what you're doing is you're averaging on very low volumes of property being sold. And in some places, property prices have dramatically gone up from where they were. In others, they're still falling. And so therefore, the average tells you absolutely nothing at all. And yet, I've had so many people in my surveys assume that the 6.3% rise quoted by CoreLogic applies to them wherever they are in the Sydney Basin, for example. And it's just not true. So I think we need to be much more focused at a granular level, looking at individual properties, individual locations. But as I say, generally houses better than units and closer into the city better than further out. Yep. Now, now we're not seeing any signs of sort of life in the development sector. I don't know whether you, in any of your surveys, you, you capture any of that or... I guess no, it's, 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 the, it's the worst. In fact, the SME sector that support the uh, construction sector are telling me that they used to work six days a week. Now they're lucky if they get um, three days. They're working shorter hours. They've got less of a pipeline than previously. And essentially, it looks it looks pretty worrying. The forward um, uh, approvals for new construction has come way off the boil. And many of those properties that are currently being built, uh, developers are now, for example, trying to rent them rather than sell them in the short term or offer deep discounts. Uh, in fact, what they tend to do is to offer a full price, but then actually pay some of it back. So effectively, the sale price looks higher than it really is. So there's a lot of that going on. And there's also more spare capacity. And even now, a number of building firms gone out of business, which means you've got half-finished construction sites, which uh, may or may not be finished down the track. So no, there's very little evidence of any new construction. And it's interesting that one of the big... Uh, uh, building firms recently said, well, maybe the bank should lend to help fix some of these issues relating to poor quality construction and the cladding because otherwise this whole area is going to stall. Mm. Well, that's uh, yeah, because that's interesting. I mean, most of this still seems to be sort of bank driven, I suppose, in terms of uh, you know if what we're hearing is access to credit for sort of small and, and medium sized developers is just not there at all. Um, so, is that something? Sorry, is that what you're saying as well? Absolutely. So a lot of uh, SMEs are saying they have a business plan and they've got an appetite to do something, but they can't find the funding to get it. They could go to the uh, fintech sector, unsecured fintech, but the rates there are very high. And mm. so it's uneconomic for them to do that. Uh, many of them will say, I've got a relationship with an existing bank. I don't uh, damage that relationship. I don't ask for more funds because I know I can't get them elsewhere. So it really is, to my mind, this is a big deal. And of course, bear in mind that one of the issues behind here is the the bail ratio. So if you actually lend as a bank to an SME, the amount of capital you have to hold for that particular loan is a lot higher than if you made the same loan or a bigger loan for a mortgage where the capital ratio is a lot lower. So the very structure of banking regulation and the ratios 
actually tilt banks towards property lending relative to uh, meat and potato lending for the SME sector. So we have to really come back to some basic principles, I think, if we're going to turn this around. And there isn't a lot of appetite internationally or locally to do that. Yeah. And certainly in the small business sector, all you ever hear is that you know, banks don't want to look at their business and what their cash flows and all that type of stuff. They just want to know how much how much equity you got in your property. You know, if you want to back your back your loan with your own property, then we'll we'll do it for you. Well, of course, that's what they they click from a risk point of view, but it's not the risk to the end person, it's the risk to them, right? So if there's equity yeah. there, then they can say, Yeah, very little mm. risk. Mm. And by the way, I would tell you that I think that the risk in the banking system and particularly around property underwriting is a lot higher than many banks recognize. My own modeling and my own survey suggests that in fact the loan to value ratios and the amount of households in negative equity and the amount at risk through a mortgage stress for example are much higher than the banks currently recognize and so we're going to continue to see I think the default rates rising. 90-day defaults are a bit higher than they were a few months ago. They've come back a little bit now because of seasonal adjustments. But I expect the defaults will continue to rise, and that's because many businesses are struggling, many households are struggling because of the lack of income and the lack of jobs. And so I think that the risks to the banks in their portfolios is probably quite a lot higher than they want to recognise at the moment. Mm. Sure. Uh, Martin, just actually while we're on that on that topic, um, and we mentioned before in, in regards to property and areas that are showing promise and, and not so on, I guess that pays homage to the adage that there's no such thing as a property market. It's really a series of much smaller markets that all sort of work in, you know, but quite separate from each other. Um, jumping across to um, the household piece and something that I follow with yourself and, um, and DFA uh, with, with reasonable fervour is um, your household segment uh, work that you do. And, and as you mentioned before, in regards to um, the, the mortgage stress indicators, um, just for the purpose of our audience, would you mind just giving a bit of background to that? Because it's quite a unique piece of analysis, I think, and, and very valuable to, uh, to this uh, uh, narrative, if you will. Yeah, so certainly uh, it is important and it's unique. As you say, there's nobody else doing it the way I do it. So basically, I look at households when I survey them. We actually ask about their income, their expenditure, including their mortgage repayments. And that allows us to make a cash flow estimate of how they're positioned. And my definition of mortgage stress is when cash flow in is not uh, sufficient to cover all the outgoings, including the mortgage repayments. And so they're in mortgage stress where they've got a deficit. Now, in a, they have a deficit, they can do a few things. They can raid deposits, which people are doing. That's why the savings ratio is down. They can put more on credit cards. They can perhaps refinance and restructure. But nevertheless, eventually, the people who are in uh, deficit end up in difficulty. So mortgage stress measures that. Uh, we've got more than 1 million households now in mortgage stress. That's more than we've ever had. And it's spread across our household segments. So we have young growing families, as you'd expect, you know, that a lot of them are really stretched. But we also have older households and even affluent households, you know, the top end of the market. And quite a lot of those have multiple properties, investment properties, and their cash flows are also under pressure as well. So mortgage stress is in places where you perhaps wouldn't expect to see it, as well as, you know, the, the, the normal uh, people that uh, you always expect to see in the battles and those sorts of things. So it's quite w widespread. We also track it on an ongoing basis and the granular level. So we can look at it across states, rising in Western Australia, rising in New South Wales now. And it's a precursor to defaults later. So essentially mortgage stress is perhaps two to three years ahead of default levels. And I was talking two or three years ago about rising stress levels in Western Australia. Now we're seeing rising level defaults defaults double in Western Australia compared with the eastern states. But now we're seeing similar trends here. So mortgage stress is rising. And so it's a very important early indicator of household pressure 
And essentially, in our surveys, we can then identify that pressure from two sources. One is incomes not growing and job security less than it was and often multiple jobs, multiple part-time jobs, multiple gig jobs quite often. And then on the costs of living side, as well as the mortgage repayments, which were a little bit relieved thanks to low interest rates for some, but the other costs of living, childcare costs, electricity costs, fuel costs, all of those things are much higher, even food costs now thanks to the drought. So put it all together, more households are in difficulty, and that means that they are very much uh, under the gun. That means they don't have the capacity to spend. That's why household spending is significantly lower than it was. That's why the retail numbers are so low. And it's all to do with this same issue of lack of disposable income, pressure on financial pressure, financial pressure on households, and the implications then in terms of them managing and frankly tripping up later, particularly if unemployment rises uh, ahead as we model sometimes that it could well. Absolutely. And um, I guess on that negative wealth effect, um, the uh, recent sort of new car sales have sort of come out at historic lows as well, just to chuck another um, uh, negative stat, I guess, on the, on the, on the negative wealth pile. So, uh, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, and utes of particular, of course, because a lot of utes are bought by uh, SMEs and a lot of utes are now uh, not <laughs> not being bought by SMEs because they can't afford it. So, yeah, it's just another indicator. And it's interesting because, you know, some of the um, uh, the people out there are saying, oh, no, everything's fine. You know, it, it'll just be a matter of um, unemployment will, will, will continue to drop. And you know, the RBA is saying we're targeting a 4.5% unemployment rate. At that stage, uh, wages will rise. But unemployment's at 5.3 at the moment and probably rising. And it seems to me that whatever the Reserve Bank does, it's very unlikely they're going to be down to where they would want to get it. And that means that income growth is probably going to be stuck in the sort of the zero real terms for some long time. So households cannot get out of jail, which is what they did, by the way, in the early 2000s when they were borrowing big, but their incomes were growing a lot faster than their cost. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, um, without dipping into the OK Boomer thematic, although we do have a, a millennial a Generation X and a, and a Boomer on the line here, so it could be a, a big long, uh, <laughs> a big long tail. But um, just on that note, I um, you know going back to the the sort of seventies and eighties, I think that was sort of something that. Um, was certainly a big a big tailwind to you know the, the boomer lifestyle today was the fact that with high infla uh, inflation and also high wage growth, um, it meant that you know assets bought today were um, you know infinitely uh, payoffable <laughs> if that's a term. Well, if you um, make if you make a mistake, yeah, uh, inflation will erase that mistake Correct. over a period of time. Yeah, yeah, inflation yeah, inflation of your asset prices was um, was a terrific tailwind. But um, we might just park the OK boomer uh, <laughs> there for another for another day. Look, uh, mindful of time, and look, thanks very much for. Um, a, a terrific chat today. Uh, where can our audience uh, get in touch with some of your work, Martin, going forward? Yeah, so uh, we have a, a blog, digitalfinanceanalytics.com, and that's where we post all of our videos and also a bunch of other research that we do. Uh, our video channel on YouTube is called Walk the World, and you can see a lot of the work we do there. And we also have another channel called In the Interest of the People, and that's slightly more politically uh, minded, where we talk about some of the political issues with John Adams, an economist. Uh, so that's basically it. And also I'm on Apple uh, iTunes when it comes to the, uh, the DFA podcast, which is another channel for us as well. Fantastic. Thanks very much. We'll uh, look really looking forward to getting you back on the show uh, soon. And uh, yeah, thanks again for your time today. Good to talk to you both, and uh, I think we're living in interesting times. Certainly do. Thanks, Martin. Cheers. Cheers. So, Damien, we uh, had a 
Terrific. 45-odd minutes there with uh, Martin North, a well-researched guy uh, and uh, certainly uh, knows exactly his topics and uh, has plenty of data and information to, to share that. Yeah, well. sure. Yeah, I might, I'll jump into that in a sec. Maybe we can just ask, answer a few of the questions that popped up. Yeah, sure. So we've got a couple here. Um, so we'll kick off with uh, one from Alistair. Uh, his question is, what parts of Sydney are a safe uh, bet? That one we dealt with already. Oh, okay, big pardon. Uh, here we go. Uh, Thanks for another question. Okay, here we go. So, uh, what impact? What? How, sorry, how much of an impact does the foreign investment have on the market? And is the data we have fully reflective of foreign influence on the market? And does it allow for fraud? Uh, look, the Australian housing market's one of the uh, key places in the developed world that is um, that's sort of open for business in terms of uh, fraud. So, in terms, so certainly in terms of uh, money laundering. So, it's been you know called out on a number of occasions. Uh, there's been uh, 15 years, longer maybe, of, of, of proposals in Australia to, uh, to to actually put anti-money laundering. Uh, and every time it just sort of kicks over and, and they just put, keep, keep pushing it away and, and, and do it later. So, mm. so yeah, lots of, lots of, um, uh, lots of illicit funds um, tend to end up in, in Australian housing market. Uh, the foreign influence, there was a uh, – Joe Hockey started to put on a, a number of laws and started to look to push. And then um, once he left, uh, th- I think a lot of those laws are hanging around, but, but again, nobody's policing them and, and very little money's ever being spent on, on trying to uh, trying to police those. So it's sort of a little bit um, – there are some laws there. There's a lot of looking the other way and, um, uh, yeah, certainly lots of influence in these, the Aussie house. It's, it's one thing keeping it a little bit higher than, than, what, you'd, than what it should do. Is uh, based on their that foreign influence, but again, it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. Seems. Absolutely, and with yeah. the things that are going on in Hong Kong and, and whatnot as well, you can only expect further. Maybe less- yeah, you get anecdotal from that. I think I think what you're finding is there's less Chinese investment though, so there's a little bit of an offset in terms of a lot less Chinese investment, more Hong Kong investment, mm-hmm. and, and Hong Kong's not that um, you know not that large of a place in terms of I think seven odd million people. Yep, um, and there's obviously you know a lot lot more in in China, and and so. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a little bit swings and roundabouts, but but that's one potential positive. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And I guess now um, looking across to uh, how these themes are, are impacted every day at, at Nucleus Wealth and how we how we use the, uh, I guess this overarching uh, property uh, problem potentially that's on the horizon in, in our investment methodology. Yeah. Sure. So so I mean it all comes back to this one key question as I, as I said and I've written about it a number of times is can the Australian housing market on its own prop up the rest of the Australian economy. Mm. So we saw very clearly uh, 2012 to 2017, um, we had this boom in credit conditions and and uh, more foreign buyers, lots of people coming into Australia, all these all these big positives. Um, at the same time, and, and Sydney and Melbourne, Sydney and Melbourne house prices going boom. At the same time, in Perth, we saw um, with exactly the same conditions, uh, except for the employment conditions, we saw house prices falling. So for us, uh, you know, a lot of it comes back to um, so all these conditions are good, but if you see weak weak employment, then um, that's going to that's going to lead on to your your housing market. And and we're seeing some very weak employment in the development sector. Mm. So uh, just the house building sector, which which actually has you know quite significant multipliers into the rest of the economy. Uh, there's also low transactions going through. So even though the the um, properties are recovering, um, the the number of transactions is still quite low. And so, if you're a real estate agent, if you're a conveyancer, if you're um, you know any, anywhere involved in that, uh, or if you're a state government, yep. um, you're not getting the same revenue you used to get. And so, that sort of then flows on into the they don't spend as much money on on everything else. And so, um, 
um, and so Martin came back and and um, yeah, pretty much uh, uh, confirmed. In, confirmed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, what we're seeing is is um, there is no love for developers among the banks at the moment. Yep. Um, and little support um, elsewhere. Not to say it won't come. Mm. Maybe there'll be a, a you know, government bailout or something like that. Um, I wouldn't put it past. Uh, but at the moment, uh, that's very weak. And uh, you know, our concern is that will that will lead to bigger, bigger and bigger problems the more we go into this. And, and and the problem with the apartment side of it in particular is there's very long lead times. Mm. So the apartments that are finishing today are the ones that started three years ago. Uh, and so we saw the development pipeline about a year ago start to, to, to cut out. Yep. And so we're really not going to see the effect for another, you know, it'll just be gradual and then and gradual. But when you, if you do see stimulus and you do see a turnaround, you won't see the pickup for another, you know, year or two before you start seeing the, yep. the, yep. Uh, good point that, that flow through. Yeah, sure. So, you know, that, where that leaves us is, is the Australian property is, you know, pretty limited upside um, and you've got a, a quite considerable downside. And, uh, you know, whenever I'm looking for assets to invest in, I, I tend not to like those assets. I'm looking for the other way around, limited downside and lots of upside. Um, the Australian housing market's pretty much got the exact opposite. Uh, the Australian economy is pretty tied to the, uh, to the property and there's sort of broader risks in the economy. And so, um, yeah, we're sort of, it leaves us largely where we are. Um, she was trying to look for assets that are that are reasonable priced, uh, and uh, they tend not to be in Australia. Uh, okay, sure thing, fantastic. So, um, coming up next week, we're continuing on with our uh, fantastic, fantastic series of uh, podcast and, and show guests in uh, world-renowned philosopher, author, and ethicist. Peter Singer, who's going to be um, joining us uh, via, well, we're going to do a pre-record from, uh, he's currently over in, in America, uh, to discuss his take on ethics and in particular, of course, around ethical investment. Uh, and we're going to be looking forward to a, a fantastic discussion on uh, our method of, of uh, the way that we offer uh, clients and investors uh, the ability to ethically tailor their investments through what we do. Uh, and then broadly, I guess, uh, around uh, what he's been up to as well. And he's uh, done a revision of a new book. Um, so on that note, um, once again, of course, uh, if you've uh, enjoyed today, please head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe, or you can also head to www.nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe. You can leave your details there and we'll, of course, keep you posted on uh, all, new, all new information that's coming out about Nucleus Wealth. Well, that's it for now and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe. Give us your email address and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today as I have and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.